So last week, um, as a staff team, we did something that um, we don't do very often, but um, we're going to be doing more often now uh, for a variety of reasons. But uh, last week, one evening, the staff came over to uh, my kind of backyard office, and we spent 90 minutes or so uh, writing names, many of your names, on my whiteboard and, and just listing out like anyone and everyone we thought we might need or want to pray for. And then we spent most of that time praying for many of you. And what was amazing about it is just how much, and, and especially in throughout the rest of the week, having those names on my whiteboard still, every, anytime and every time I go in the office, whether it's to you know, continue writing a sermon or, or playing Legos with my son, Ransom, um, those names were on the board. But they started to become more than names. They became these representations of stories, dozens of stories of need and of loss and of adversity, longing, satisfied and not, suffering in general. The circumstances of all those names and represented by those names, they, you know, they vary. They, come, you know, they vary from chronic illness to acute injury or both. <laughs> they... Um, Represented conflict, both disorienting and isolating, doubt-causing. They involved Job-like runs of bad luck and things compounding other things. And out-of-the-blue tragedy is one as well that like nobody could predict. But what all of them had in common, and what really struck me, is just how universal it is that... Part of what it means to be human alive today, right now, and really any time between Jesus's, until Jesus returns is that we suffer because things aren't the way they're supposed to be, right? Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Life is not the way it's supposed to be. And I, I can think of few better summary descriptions of, of the experience of living in a, in, a, in a world in a time where the fall is ever-present around us and affects all of life. And it just, it's actually, you know, even as we were praying, it actually made me really kind of, I don't know, proud of you guys in a lot of ways. If you're wondering if your name was on the whiteboard, the answer is probably yes. And also, I say I'm, I'm, in a lot of ways I'm proud because how we respond when things are not the way that they're supposed to be is varies in this world, right? Right, if you are a, you know, by temperament or personality, if you're a driver, chances are you, you are tempted to power through it, whatever it is. If you're a thrill seeker, you will probably distract from it. If you are creative, you're probably going to channel it and express it in some way. If you're an achiever, you're going to fix it. If you're a helper, you're going to fix others. <laughs> if you're ADD, you'll probably forget it. If you're a perfectionist, you'll control it. If you're a peacemaker, you're going to nap through it. If you're a learner, you're going to master it. If you're a hard worker, you're going to rub some dirt on it. And if you're American, you're going to blame and resent others for it. Right? I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek, but it's a definitely a kind of laugh-so-you-don't-cry kind of truth, Right? But James says that if you're a Christian, you patiently endure it. 
That's strange on the surface, but I, I hope it feels even more strange as I have listed kind of like all the different ways that we, we respond to the, a world that is not the way it's supposed to be. And I want us to lean into how, that strangeness this morning. And so let, let's begin by just asking like, okay, what do, I, like what, what do I mean by patience? What is patience? And why is this particular kind of patience that James is talking about so strange to us? Well, I'm going to use a working definition uh, of this. Patience is, a, is the spiritual resilience and willingness to endure adversity without anger, resentment, despair, or a need to control. Nobody's perfectly patient. That's part of the point of this definition. Like, it, this is something we all can aspire to and not reach on this side of heaven, right? In giving this definition, though, I, I want to assure you that, that this does not mean, and what I'm not talking about is this kind of like aloof or a disinterested kind of Christian-themed stoicism, right? It's, it's What this is describing is a realism that doesn't shirk a, a doing business with it, how things are not the way they're supposed to be, but it's one that's anchored in the confidence that what is not the way it's supposed to be will be the way it's supposed to be one day. The end of the story, as I said earlier. This patience is strange because we are all predisposed to respond to, to life that's not the way it's supposed to be with vice instead of virtue. Right? By vice, I mean these things that we, we do as a way to avoid suffering, either to, to, to a false comfort in the midst of it, to distract ourselves from it, to you know, whatever that is, when we treat something in that way as a means of avoiding suffering, as a means of a way of avoiding pain, then that we are, we are treating it as a vice. A virtue is something that is not a way to avoid suffering, it's a way to transcend it. A virtue is something that is not dependent or affected by the circumstances. It's tested by the circumstances for sure, but it is not, it is not dictated by them. Patience is a virtue because it's not dictated by whether circumstances are or aren't the way they're supposed to be, but we, isn't it crazy, like as, as, as I was writing the sermon, how it just made, made me realize how much we actually see patience as a vice now. Like if you are patient, it's because, well, you clearly aren't doing business with how bad the world is. You're not angry enough. Right? Or you're tolerating something that shouldn't be tolerated. It's like, well, to be patient doesn't mean that you're saying something is okay. It's actually saying that there's someone who will make it more than okay. That's, that's what makes it a virtue and not a vice. So uh, what, what else about patience do we need to, to understand and why it's so strange for us? It's because, secondly, ultimately, all patience literally all patience, is waiting on God to bring his promises to fruition. That's what James is talking about in verses 7 and 8 when he's talking about using this kind of mini parable of the farmer that waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, right? We must be patient and wait patiently for relief from both colds and cancer. But what we're really waiting for is for Christ to make us whole forever we must wait patiently for every abuse of power to be made right but what we're really waiting for is the new heavens and new earth 
when God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and we will no longer need to pray it. We will be thanking God that it is so. We must wait patiently for peace in Ukraine and across the world, but what we're really waiting for is Jesus to return and to turn all swords into plowshares. All of that and more will be made actually the way it's supposed to be when Jesus returns. And so that's what James is describing when he says that we are to be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. What he's saying is like, this, these things that you're longing for, the way the world is not the way it's supposed to be, pay attention to that, actually. Don't ignore it. Don't act like it's not a thing. That's actually an opportunity to be patient for the, when Jesus makes all things new, where, when patience will actually no longer be needed at all. The farmer's fruit, then, is the Lord's coming. And what that means is, and what, what's interesting about this parable is, is this is, it's communicating this in a way that it doesn't allow us to throw the pendulum in the other direction. We can't view patience as this passive kind of sitting on our hands thing either. Because he says that the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it. Right? He's planted that fruit. He's been sowing it. He's been cultivating. He's been attending to it. And so... What James is implying here is this doesn't mean that your actions don't matter. If anything, what we sow and how we cultivate is somehow connected. It mysteriously matters. No, we are not the Christ. But Christ does entrust his people to spread his promises until he brings them to fruition. Third and finally, what is, and this is kind of bleeding into this third part that James is communicating in the first few verses here, is that imminently, not just ultimately, but imminently, what it means to be patient is to seek restoration and not condemnation. And that's verses 9 through 10. Right? When he says, look to the prophets as an example of suffering and patience, brothers. He's saying that the prophets are a good example because they demonstrate that patience is not a lack of urgency. It's not being uncomplaining, right? I mean, even, like Jeremiah is, is referred to as the weeping prophet. He's like, woe is me in a way that is just, it's kind of obnoxious, honestly, if you read part of it. It's like, come on, come on, man, let's get over this. Like he wrote, he also wrote a, a book in the Old Testament called Lamentations, right? It's, the guy is not unaware of the suffering in the world, Okay. But he shows us, like the rest of the prophets, a patience that can be a holy and vocal discontent that ex is expressed both vertically to God and horizontally to others. Now, in saying this, I, I, I need to give a little bit of a disclaimer, right? Because um, I don't know how else to say this, except that like, one of the worst parts about the cultural moment we're living in right now is everyone thinks they are or wants to be prophetic, right? And to quote the sage Inigo Montoya, that word does not mean what you think it means. So I want to give three reasons why that is profoundly stupid, okay? And what I mean by that is this is something that we humbly enter into and should not sprint at because we, we don't really fully understand what it means to be prophetic or to have a prophetic voice, or to speak truth to power, right? Number one, it's important to know your Old Testament and to know that no prophet sought out their calling. 
nobody was like, that's what I want to be when I grow up. That's just not a thing, okay? Several, in fact, tried to avoid it. Jonah is the most obvious case. He got into, he's like, God, you want me to go to Nineveh? Cool, I'm going to get in a ship and sail in the exact opposite direction as fast as I could, uh, as, I, as I can, right? And no prophet personally benefits from being a prophet. All suffer, right? Jonah, Jonah is almost a comical example of this, right? Secondly, uh, all prophets spoke, like when we're talking about as an example, this is a really important for us to know that, that prophets spoke with a fear and trembling for God because they knew that if they are representing God, that that is something way bigger than they can actually carry responsibility for. They were not speaking for themselves. Right? We are, I think, part of what feeds into our, our really bad misunderstanding of the word prophet or prof- prophetic and like our misguided desire to, to, to do that role is because we want to have the role without the responsibility, right? We live in a culture that is very focused on rights, but not our responsibility. And it's important that like those two things being paired together is what keeps everything from unraveling and falling apart. Responsibility without rights crushes people. Rights without responsibility turns to anarchy. This responsibility that the prophets carried was, ra- was a radically humbling catalyst, right? Jonah, again, is a good example of a misguided prophet in the sense that he knew that if he went to Nineveh and followed God's will in, in, in this, he, said, he says at the end of Jonah, like in the book of Jonah, he says to God, he's like, I knew that if I went there and preached and did as you told me to, that you would actually forgive them. I didn't want that. They're my enemies. I don't like the Ninevites. That's why I ran, because I knew, God, you are faithful. Most importantly, here's the third and last reason why wanting to be a prophet is profoundly stupid. It's because the purpose of prophets is not how we seem to functionally operate as them, as modern prophets, right? Is we want to con- use use the prophetic role to condemn, but that's not actually a godly use. A godly prophet restores and seeks to restore. That's why Jonah is such a terrible example. Actually, in fact, I should have used Jonah as the controlling illustration for this, these three points, because he's a good example of, like, that's actually our hearts and our attitudes. It's almost like God might have included it in Scripture for that reason. Huh. His example is this contrast that helps us see the difference between a holy discontent that James is describing here that is anchored by trust in God's faithfulness versus what Jonah demonstrates, which is an unholy discontent that is fueled by avoidance. The tragedy of Jonah, actually, is that he knew things are not the way that they're supposed to be. And the way that he handled it actually slowed God bringing the fruit of things the way they're supposed to be. That's the ironic. He's the anti-prophet. So James's point is this. Except Jonah, the prophets had a strange patience because they had an extraordinary faith in God that came from being humbled by the responsibility of patiently enduring until they saw his promises. But 
But their faith and their trust was not that this, that God would bring this fruition right here, right now, but that and they, but they could still seek and hope for restoration despite that, despite seeing zero evidence of it, of even thinking that it might be possible to come in the short term or fruit being born from their effort at all. This is really important, and this is why I'm harping on this, because this sets up and helps us to understand what in the world is going on in verse 12. Okay, so... James, I'm gonna, let me read verse 12 again to refresh our memory because it seems like he's talking about patience and suffering and then out of the blue, he's like, also, don't swear any oaths. Like, above all, even more than being patient, don't make promises you can't keep. What? Okay, so he says, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. Let me explain, like, so why, is, why, why are oaths forbidden above all? Let me kind of explain it by going the opposite direction here. If you think about it, oaths are only necessary or only a thing, a, a habit or a practice, if ordinary commitment isn't trustworthy enough. Right? Oaths are only necessary if, some, if, if it was normative that our yeses aren't yeses and our noes are not noes. So when G James says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, what he's implying is that, that, that his audience are, are, is habitually breaking it, their word, and that was common and habitual enough as a pressure release valve and as a way to avoid or to get out of painful circumstances that he said that that is representative of not patiently enduring. So this is a contrast. He's, he's, he's been saying, he's advocating for the positive, and then he says, don't do the negative, right? Don't do the opposite, okay? Let me illustrate it this way. Um, growing up, uh, my parents uh, separated in, when I was in, like, halfway through second grade, and that fol followed, following that was, like, a two-and-a-half-year period of, of divorce and custody battle that was just horrific, it was really, really bad and traumatizing. Um, my parents ended up both, like, what little they had, they ended up spending everything and more and going into debt. My dad had filed bankruptcy twice before I graduated high school, which takes skill. Um, and they spent everything they had more on legal fees, like, to the degree that I, s I, I still remember, you know, uh, like, having my dad having to ask people for clothes when I went instead of doing back-to-school shopping in 7th and 8th grade, okay? So, my dad, well, they both really knew, obviously, how hard it was my brother and I, um, but one way that my dad actually tried to help us endure that period was, was this. He would, especially when we were particularly low, what he would do is he would promise us a world that is the way it's supposed to be. Like, he would tell us, hey, you know what? This is just temporary because someday we're going to have this big house. And you're going to have your own room, and we're going to have these huge trees. And, and yeah, we're gonna, let's, let's actually start planning out and sketching out the treehouse now, right? He would talk about, like, hey, you know what? When you're, we're, when you're older, we're, we're going to go on this trip, and it's going to be a blast. Um, or, like, here's the, the Lego set that, you know, you, we can't afford it now, but, yes, we will one day. 
he couldn't follow through on any of it. Not because he didn't want to, and definitely not for a lack of trying, to his credit, but still, by middle and high school, I had an explicit conscious awareness that my dad's promises were mostly empty. And so to this day, one of the biggest struggles I have in my own personal faith and in understanding God's love and his promises is that I, when I hear God's promises, I think to myself, that's too good to be true. It's the, the biggest perennial hurdle for me is actually trusting that God cares. So if breaking your word is how we respond when things are not the way that they're supposed to be because we, we, we make up for it with grandiose promises or we, we think of ourselves more highly than we ought and we're approaching this with a, maybe a self-righteousness or, and, but, but not a humility, then we are going to struggle to believe that God won't break his promises when we don't live the way we're supposed to live. Like for those of you who, who like maybe struggle with doubt perennially, I would, just, I would just ask, I think this would be a really helpful self-reflection. When have you felt that way before? Is there someone in your life who you didn't feel like you could trust their promises or their commitments to you? And I bet you that actually has a lot more to do with things you experienced from other people than necessarily from God's faithfulness. At least that's been the case for me. What James is saying is that keeping or breaking our word in either direction, either adds or erodes our trust in God's promises for us and others. And James says that it is important above all because it is only, it is only with God's promises as our foundation that we have any hope at all of, of patiently enduring a world that isn't the way it's supposed to be. But even, even as I'm saying that, I, like, I just want to hammer home that this isn't just about surviving either. When I say patiently enduring, that's not like a staying just above water. I'm, I'm describing something that is, especially in the long term, but also in the short term, thriving. Right? Because this language that he's using about enduring, if you remember the beginning of our sermon series, the very first sermon was the strange exhortation James made in chapter 1 that he's now returning to with his language in chapter 5. He says in 2 through 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Patiently enduring is the path toward lacking in nothing. It's not because you're good at it. It's because God's faithful. And here's where it all comes down, because some of you noticed that in, in, in jumping ahead to verse 12, I, I skipped verse 11, and this, I did that intentionally because this is key. This is how all of this gets resolved together. And by the way, this is my last point, so if you have questions, definitely feel like you can send them in to the, for the Q&A. But what James is describing here is witnessing God's compassion. Witnessing God's compassion. Let me read verse 11 to refresh our memory. He says, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Again, James chapter 1. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. All right, 
So when I say witnessing God's compassion, I mean this in two ways, but I'm going to start with, with this first one and talk about Job. Because if you know anything about Job, this is a weird point of reference for James to make, right? If you know the story of Job, you know that the, the, the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful, isn't very obvious at the beginning of the book of Job, right? Because what Job is about is that one day, Satan goes to God and challenges God and says, God, you know what? The only reason why anybody believes in you and has faith and loves you and worships you is because you, you're faithful to them. What if you weren't faithful to them? Like, what if you removed your blessing from somebody and you let me have someone? Pick anyone and, and let me have my way with them and, and I will prove that he will reject you. God actually allows it and allows Satan to afflict Job with various calamities, including the loss of his children. Um, he gets miserably sick. He loses all of his money and possessions. His wife, his wife, I mean, it's just, she says, why don't you just go curse God and die? <laughs> like, what, it, what a, a picture and a representation of how bad Job has it. God did not hold Satan back in tormenting him. So, really, compassion and mercy and the purpose of the Lord? What is going on here? Well, Job struggled with his faith, but he ultimately is the example that, that James is talking about here when he said to pa- encourages us to patiently endure. Because Job does not, like, he complains he, t- he, has, he has like three friends who are just also like really bad friends too. So even in the support that's coming around him for these events, like he's, he's, he has bad friends who are giving him terrible advice and be like, Job, maybe it's your fault. And Job's like, I don't know what. Like God searched my heart. What am I doing wrong? Like I don't think that's it. And he's complaining to God and he's going to God. He's still depending on God even as he's expressing doubt to God. It counts. But in the end, God restored Job's life, his health, his fortune, his wife, like everything, and blessed him with more children as well. Now, the point that Job is making and James is making is not that like if you just patiently endure and you put that coin in the, in the, uh, the cosmic vending machine that is God, then he's going to reward you. That's not the point. The point is that in the end, God is making all things new. And unlike Job who lived before Christ's life, ministry, death, and resurrection, we have God in a present with and among us and in our midst in a way we don't actually, like, that Job didn't. It's not that God wasn't present with his people, but there's something special about the age that we live in, that God is particularly and especially present with and among his people in a way that actually that means that his promises are not just put off in, into someday but are actually present into this day. And when verse 11, that's what verse 11 is talking about, is unique. Because remember, James' original audience, they're, they're the first ones to go through this kind of suffering and trial to endure after Jesus died, was resurrected, and went to heaven, right? This is something they're learning live. When James says, uses the word compassion, I think we, we often read the word compassion as like a synonym for love. It's, it's actually not. Love is downstream of compassion. Compassion 
is this deep-seated emotional attachment that births love as an expression that can be seen and heard. It's the unction that motivates a love that's big enough to keep promises despite adversity or to patiently endure despite it as well. That's the love that Job helps us to see, that we don't have to wait until the end of the story, but knowing the end of the story and that God is present with us is beautiful. The second way that this is um, satisfying for us is that for God's people, suffering is not evidence of God's promise breaking, right? Because even in Job, it wasn't that God wasn't faithful. It's that he was faithful in a different way. It's not evidence of God's promise breaking, but it's opportunity for God's promise keeping. He's actually so faithful that we can experience that compassion and mercy in the midst of anything. And he's actually with us and, and nourishing us so that we can endure a world that is not the way it's supposed to be. Okay, that's the one direction that I'm trying to imp- talk about this witnessing of God's compassion. Here's the other way, because it's not just about us. It's not just about God's people, actually. James is hinting here. It's subtle. But he's hinting at something even bigger and broader, that, is, that, that there's far more at stake and far more to be gained than just being blessed in our steadfastness, as chapter 1 said. I'm going to want to read this quote from Will Willimon, who just, this is, he sums this up perfect, perfectly for us. He says, the most eloquent testimony, or witness, to the reality of the resurrection is not an empty tomb or a well-orchestrated pageant on Easter Sunday, even with food trucks, I think he would... He would, he would intend, but rather a group of people whose life together is so radically different, so completely changed from the way the world builds a community, you might even call it strange, that there can be no explanation other than something decisive has happened in history. In other words, the weird resilience that God's people have in the midst of adversity is an aroma of Christ. When sniffing it out and smelling it and realizing that it is it is saturating the ecosystem that our neighbors live and work and walk through every day. They start to think to themselves, wow, there must be a God around here somewhere. It's a signpost to the on-ramp into the new heavens and new earth. See, Americans have, we have so much practice avoiding any and all need for patient endurance that we wouldn't recognize it if a global pandemic forced us to stay inside and deal with it. And that means, like, there's some bad news and good news with this. And then we'll get into the Q&A, okay? The bad news is that as a church, like uh, the American church, our witness has suffered because we suffer so impatiently. We need to own that and take responsibility for it. Not just take the role of loving our neighbors ourselves, but also take responsibility for the way that we respond or do not responsibly to patiently endure, as James is describing. But here's the good news. There may actually be no greater witness than the strange patient that suffers so well that our thriving just reeks of resurrection. I mean, that's actually kind of incredible. Like, what if suffering well was actually all we had to worry about? Not fixing it, because God is the one that makes all things new. Not fixing other people because that's actually the Holy Spirit's job. 
Not stressing about, you know, all the things we can't control in the world because that's God the Father's job. But just suffering well and trusting that the end of the story is guaranteed and guaranteed enough that we can patiently endure. Let's see what questions we have this morning. Okay, just one so far, it looks like. Um, I may have, okay, two questions from this person. I may have missed the context, but do we know this passage applies to everyone and not a prophet? Good question, yes. Uh, it starts with, be patient, therefore, brothers. And then the end of the passage, it's bookended, but, but above all, my brothers, right? This is a signal that this section here, this is com- being communicated to the church, right? And that's the entire letter of James as well, but good question. Uh, should we expect any additional prophets after Christ Or is that unlikely given that Christ fulfilled the law and brought the gospel? Also a good question. Um, Capital P? No, we should not expect that, right? Um, John, the Apostle John in Revelation, the way that he ends the book of Revelation is to say that if anyone adds or takes away from this word, um, let him be accursed. It's a pretty good sign that we should not expect anything being added to Scripture. Uh, Lowercase p, what it means, I mean, there is a sense that when Paul says in Ephesians 4 that God gave us the prophets, evangelists, uh, shepherds, teachers, and evangelists, that there are lowercase examples of this. And yes, there is a role that prophets in the Old Testament serve that is to advocate for the flourishing of a just society. It's not that we shouldn't, I mean, James is saying, Look as your example to the prophets. That's actually, to a degree, a responsibility for all of us. Where we go off the the rails on this is by thinking that we can do that on our power or without the responsibility of of the Old Testament prophets. Good question. Second, one other question here. Um, What is the extent of the condemnation consequence in verse 12? Ultimate condemnation or temporary? Okay, this is a great question. I was, kinda, I was wondering if somebody would ask this. Okay, so let me, verse 12, let me re- reread verse 12. He says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Okay, so another place that James is strange is that um, unlike the Western world, Judgment, and the idea of judgment, is actually a comforting thing for his audience. And so when he says that the coming of the Lord, uh, be patient until the coming of the Lord in verse 7, he's saying uh, the coming of the Lord is at hand, do not grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. This is intended not to threaten or to condemn, but to actually bring comfort, right? Because what James understands and what we really are inexperienced and unpracticed in is that Part of what helps us get off our high horse isn't just the humility that we should have knowing that God is, is, is judge and we are not, but it's actually the comfort of knowing we don't have to worry about it. Okay, that's important context. The second half of my answer to this question is, so when he says, when he's talking about condemnation, he's talking about when you get into the habit of breaking commitment, of breaking covenant with your horizontally, be very, very careful that you don't start breaking covenant vertically with God. So what he's saying here is if we take our own words so lightly 
that we do this to our fellow man, that that's actually a reflection of our willingness to leave and step out of God's covenant with us and to reject God. So what he's saying here is be careful, be wary that you don't get so far down that road that you don't realize that you have left God's covenant community, you have left God's uh, covenant and faithfulness because you have actively rejected him, because you're so pursuing comfort and avoidance of suffering that you no longer are able to see grace. So I hope, if that doesn't answer your question, please uh, follow up and let me know. Um, because that's a really good one, and that's a huge theme that I only kind of touched on in the sermon. Um, um, Because I mentioned I'm fighting a cold, I'm not going to go anywhere near these two tables. I'm going to just kind of uh, set up communion from here and and pray for us. Um, But communion, I mean, let let me put it this way. I'm viscerally aware that if you are trying and feel like you're failing to patiently endure a world that is not the way it's supposed to be, that there, that this, everything I've said this morning might, might not be terribly satisfying still. Because there's something in us that wants to ask the question of like, okay, so but why is God letting this happen? Why is he allowing, it seems like the world to fall apart in some places, uh, whether it's a bank run or a war in Eastern Europe or your own life, like just coming apart at the seams. And unfortunately, Scripture doesn't give us anything like an answer to that question of why. But at communion and at the Lord's Supper, what we have in the cross is an amazing and incredible answer to the question of why not. We know, even if we can't understand or know a why for our individual wrestlings, we know that the answer cannot be because God didn't care. Or that he was passive and sitting on his hands. Because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he told his disciples, this bread is my body. It is broken for you. I have entered into the world that I created that you have ruined and I will make it new. Not at a distance, but in and through it. By subjecting myself to it. Likewise, he took the wine, he poured out, and he says, this wine is the blood, is my blood, is the blood of the new covenant. It is given for the remission of sins. It is shed in joyness and gladness, and also because God is faithful and responsible to his creation, even if we are the ones that screw it up. He says, this blood is the blood that you are looking for to be shed, to satisfy every injustice, to... Uh, to accomplish every peace, to atone for every wrong once and for all. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink this wine, he says, you proclaim my death until I return. You are nourished in the good news of my love so that you can patiently endure a world that is not the way it's supposed to be so that I can come and make it the way it is supposed to be. If that is your hope, even a little bit, this table is for you. This is the whole reason why Jesus had the Last Supper with his disciples. And so as soon as um, Darren here, I'm going to pray as he's leading worship, as soon as eight or ten of you come up uh, around each table, then the, the hosts and servers will, will distribute the elements and we'll take it together as a family. We're going to be actually like looking each other in the, in the eye. That was weird, strange, 
That's family, right? And so, because God's sacrifice, Jesus' love for us, the gospel has made us family. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your good news. Thank you that the bad news of our need for rescue and redemption is not something that in any way competes with it, but it actually has been redeemed and co-opted and now makes it even more beautiful and more good. There is no brokenness, Lord. There is no thing that is not the way it's supposed to be that you cannot and will not and have not promised nor complete to fulfill your promise in making all things new. And Lord, that is our hope. That is the foundation for our patiently enduring everything. Lord, we pray all this in your name. Amen.